Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, hello there, and welcome, history friends, patrons, PhD pals, all yada yada yada, to this teaser episode for Poland is Not Yet Lost. Why did I decide to release a teaser episode? Well, if you weren't aware, I feel like it's the perfect time because at this moment we've released the first episode, the first proper narrative episode of the Poland is Not Yet Lost story. So after several background episodes, we're finally starting the actual story itself, which is pretty exciting and I thought you guys should be made aware of it in case you didn't quite know, because I have mentioned it several times in other mediums such as social media, but I know sometimes that can kind of slip through the cracks. 
So here I'm going to play a few short clips of different episodes that have been released before. Nothing too revolutionary, we've done this before with other stuff like 1956. Just to see if maybe you want to have full access to this series after having a few teasers. We're going to start off by playing a clip of the first episode itself. And this first episode, episode 1, called Election and Electors, is out today in the $5 and above patrons feed. Which of course you can access... By going to, I'm sure you're thinking about what I'm going to say already, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. It's written down below and you can follow that link easy as pie. But what may surprise you about the approach that we're taking with Poland is not yet lost is that it's not a nitty gritty examination of a history of the Polish country itself and we're not solely confining our analysis to the Commonwealth. Even though, of course, there's plenty of material there, unfortunately, much of it is in Polish, but there are a lot of other things to talk about too, specifically the major personalities which dominated the landscape of the 18th century. The beginning of the 18th century was dominated by, well, several figures, but two that we focus on in this extract are the new king of Poland, Augustus II, or Augustus the Strong, depending on whom you ask, and Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia, who effectively led the Russian Empire from the doldrums into some seriously important developments and triumphs. So have a listen to this extract and stick around afterwards for some more. Possessing of a great stamina and intellect, Augustus had not expected to become either Elector of Saxony or, of course, the King of Poland, but his brother's death from smallpox in 1694 and necessitated his own ascension to the head of the electorate. Seeing perhaps the general trend of the European ruler towards that of increased power and ambition, Augustus certainly viewed the Polish throne as a means to an end. He would use its prestige and resources not merely to gain additional fame and fortune for his house, but also as a stick with which to beat his irritating Saxon estates with, as they continuously sought to reduce his authority. His plan was to offset the weakness of one office with the strengths of another, but in the end, neither his electoral nor his royal office would prove strong enough to offset the weaknesses of the other. His is a story and a reign which we will be thoroughly occupied with for much of this series, and the story of his house will continue as his son assumed the throne in the 1730s. Largely pilloried by the history books in light of the breathtaking fall from power and prestige which Augustus and his son presided over, the rule of the House of Wetton in Poland-Lithuania had the misfortune to be just weak enough to aggravate the problems which the Commonwealth already faced, right at the point when Poland's traditional rivals were greatly increasing in strength. The Saxon presence in our story of Poland reflects the 18th century fact that much of the continent's events and relations were intertwined, at least in some form. Just as the tale of Poland-Lithuania would be incomplete without some elaboration on the nature of its Saxon line of kings and the issues and challenges this created across the continent, so too would Augustus II's story be incomplete without examining a significant actor who operated at this point in our story comfortably in the background. He was the 25-year-old, travelling Russian potentate Peter Alexievich Romanov, incognito during his famed Great Embassy, in which he visited all of the major cities in northwestern Europe. 
posterity has come to know him as Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia. Peter's great embassy abroad had several objectives, but one of the major goals was to maintain and increase support for joint campaigns against the Ottoman Empire in the aftermath of declining, apathetic commitments by the Holy League. With peace looming with the Turks, and Peter apparently unable to stop the treaty... Alright, so if you want to hear that episode, remember, it's out today. And in the episodes to come, we'll be looking an awful lot at the different actors in the 18th century. So if you want to hear more about Peter the Great, or Charles XII of Sweden, or even Louis XIV, or Louis XV, or Louis XVI, or many other actors besides, such as a certain Frederick, then make sure you check in on that series, because we're not just looking at Poland, we're also looking at Poland's neighbours, because you can't tell the story of Poland without looking at her neighbours. Some were nice, some were mean. But in the episodes leading up to this, in these background episodes, which were being released at the same time as the 17th Century Warfare series episodes, we looked at some other neighbours of Poland. And one of these neighbours in particular, Lithuania, decided that they were such good friends with Poland that they wanted to join up with Poland and make the Commonwealth. Of course, this process didn't happen overnight. But in this extract here from episode A, part 3, we examine the motives behind the Grand Duke of Lithuania and his decision to marry into the Polish royal house and fuse his country with that of Poland, for better or for worse, for the foreseeable future. Have a listen to this extract, and I'll see you afterwards. So long as Lithuania and Muscovy had existed, war had never been very far. In the early to mid-14th century, successive Lithuanian Grand Dukes expanded Lithuania so extensively that their patrimony stretched from the Black Sea to the Baltic, and its limits extended to within 50 miles of Moscow. Duke Algirdas ruled Lithuania for nearly 40 years, and during that time he battered Moscow almost into oblivion. He seized Kiev, and he apparently solidified the Grand Duchy's position. But Lithuania was surrounded by enemies. Poland in the west, the Teutonic Order in the northwest, Muscovy to the east, the Golden Horde to the southeast. There seemed nowhere that Lithuanian interests were guaranteed to be secure. While Duke Algirdas spent his entire reign at war, Lithuania was a sprawling collection of conquered territories rather than a coherent state. Its medieval institutions, its pagan religion and its lack of friends all contributed to its isolation. While Algirdas was dying, it's easy to imagine that he told his son to keep fighting the good fight to expand the duchy, just as Algirdas's father had done and Algirdas himself had also done. Lithuania had never been more powerful and extensive, but his son, Yogaya, knew deep down that this power and size could not last. Only a decade after Algirdas's death, Yogaya would marry Jadwiga and unite Poland and Lithuania in a dynastic union. In 1568, many, many years after that had all happened, Yogaya's descendant Sigismund Augustus sat on the throne of Poland, a product of this union and, so it seemed, the last living survivor of this great Jagiellonian dynasty. Sigismund Augustus was tired, old and unwell. He had no heirs and he was torn between his ancestral Lithuanian duties and his regal Polish commitments. There were a great many issues to consider in 1568. 
For one, those wars with Muscovy, which had once been so profitable, had continued for the last two centuries, but the Muscovites were now gaining the upper hand. They had captured Smolensk, seized portions of Livonia, and would surely set their sights on Lithuania itself next. Since 1558, Lithuania had been losing ground to the Russians, and proved consistently unable to combine its resources or manpower to meet the threat which Ivan the Terrible presented. Binding Lithuania to Poland, Sigismund Augustus understood, would guarantee that Poland would fight for Lithuanian interests, and this was one advantage of a real union which the Polish king had laid his finger on even before the same assembled for the... So hopefully that sheds a bit of light on the question of why Poland and Lithuania decided to join up in the first place. And if you've ever played Europa Universalis, you'll know that the joining of those two countries is pretty much a regular occurrence. Although, as I'm sure you also know, it doesn't always end particularly well. Now then, in section B, part 2, we look at a very particular question. You've heard of Lithuania and you've heard of Poland, but you may not have heard of the Cossacks. The Cossacks were an important people that lived in mostly modern-day Ukraine. What it meant to be a Cossack and who the Cossacks exactly were depended on whom you asked, but they played a vital role in the history of Poland mostly, at least from the second half of the 17th century onwards, in a negative way. So have a listen to this extract, and I'll see you soon. Understanding how the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth began its terminal decline in the middle of the 17th century is impossible without first understanding the position of the Cossacks within that Commonwealth. For several hundred years before the revolt led by Bogdan Komelnitsky in 1648, Cossacks from the Ukraine had variably raided into the Crimea, attacked Ottoman targets, developed their identity along the River Dnieper, established their position within the Commonwealth, and fought both for and against that Commonwealth. At different times, Cossack bands could fight for or against Polish Crown forces and on opposite sides of the battlefield. In the wilder eastern regions of the Commonwealth, law and order was in the hands of wealthier magnates, who often patrolled and held the region in security thanks to their employment of bands of Cossacks tied to their service. Across the border of this magnate's lands, Cossacks freed from such service could well engage in lucrative raids as Ukraine's grain stores remained favoured targets. Just as there was no unifying leader of the Cossacks, there was no single definition of what it meant to be a Cossack either. As the Ukrainian Sergei Ploki wrote, Who were the Cossacks? The answer depends on the period one has in mind. We know for certain that the first Cossacks were nomads. The word itself is of Turkish origin and, depending on the context, could refer to a guard, a freeman or a freebooter. The first Cossacks were all of the above. They formed small bands and lived in the steppes outside local settlements and campsites of their hordes. Living off the steppe, they turned to fishing, trapping and banditry. Another historian has defined Cossacks thus, The Cossacks were not so much a people as a way of life. The very name Cossack derives from the Turkish Tartar word denoting a free soldier, and that just about defines their identity and semi-nomadic way of life. The spiritual home of the Cossacks of western Ukraine, the Zaporizhian host, was the Sich, a commune ruled by elected leaders of the Zaporizh, the islands beyond the rapids of the river Dnieper. 
the population of the siege was variable, as almost anyone could be a Cossack if he wished. Cossacks presented themselves as a warrior class, which remained on the move to the next opportunity for plunder or service, and always outside of the Commonwealth's tax bracket. One of the defining features of being a Cossack, indeed, was that you did not pay taxes to first the Grand Duke of Lithuania, and upon the Union of Lublin in 1569, which created the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, to the Commonwealth itself. This naturally made Cossack life attractive. So those were the Cossacks, and after meeting them, you probably feel like you have a more well-rounded idea of what the Commonwealth looked like, and where exactly it was located within Europe. But what about the internal workings of the Commonwealth itself, and what about how Polish government operated, and how Polish society operated too. Well, for that, we looked at section C of our background episodes, where we looked at the Polish nobility, the Zlachta. They were essentially the engine which drove the Commonwealth forward, for better or for worse, into the future. For a long time, their influence was positive, but as the years progressed, as resources became more scarce, and as their jealousies became legion, and as the power of the Commonwealth began to wane, and, as the power of the Commonwealth's neighbours began to rapidly increase, the influence of the nobility became much more damaging, and their intentions certainly seem difficult to justify today. But in this extract here, we're not just looking at the nobility, we're also looking at arguably the forgotten aspect of Polish history, and indeed history itself, the peasants. You see, within Poland, as in many other countries, there were estates, or social classes if you like. But within Poland, these distinctions were not so straightforward. So let's listen to how Poland differed in that respect, and we'll be right back afterwards with our final extract. By the time of the Union of Lublin, the Society of Poland had settled into four broad social estates. The nobility, or szlachta, the clergy, the burghers in the towns and cities, and the Jews. Each of these four estates exercised full jurisdiction in all matters in their field, as long as those matters did not infringe upon the prerogatives of the crown. Technically, there were five estates, but with the fifth being the peasantry, you can guess who got the rawest of deals. Peasants effectively kept the different estates afloat and granted wealth and power to the clergy, Schlachte and king, but they lost a great number of their rights over the previous centuries. These had been handed to the nobility instead. This excludes the peasantry from that promising rule in the Commonwealth Estates, which stipulates that one is defined essentially by their physical, legal and later political privileges, rather than their straight-up income. Peasants enjoyed no such rights or entitlements, and were made or broken by the wealth they possessed, and they were thus confined to the bottom rungs of society's uncompromising ladder. To make this point further, a landless noble family may scratch out a living next door to a peasant family with the exact same economic means, but when time came to do anything politically important, or if the noble was subject to a quarrel or a feud which needed resolving, or if the noble wished to borrow money for instance, then the noble would be backed up by the privileges he had accumulated over the years whereas the peasant, if he was in a similar situation, would be pretty much at the mercy of the rudimentary laws in place. 
Similarly, in times of war, the noble was obliged to present himself for service and to serve with distinction and honour in the army, usually in some kind of officer or commanding role, whereas the peasant would generally be the cannon fodder. In short, peasantry, nobility, clergy, etc. were not expressions of one's socio-economic position, or class per se, but of the rights that they were entitled to, and these rights were not earned, they were inherited or married into. To pick another example, a Jew in a given city may well position himself and his family far above his Gentile neighbours in terms of wealth and business acumen, but the only way that Jew could break into the estate of the city burghers would be to convert to Christianity. You did not become one estate by meeting its criteria. With some notable exceptions, you were either of that estate or you were not. In this case, of course, we're looking at the Zlachta rather than the clergy or the city burghers, but the central theme is the same. These were not classes, but what you would deem social estates, where the state placed you in a given category, not based on what you owned, but what you were entitled to. So those were the unfortunate peasantry. And maybe now you feel as though you understand what it meant to be Polish. And maybe you even feel like the Poles should harbour some sort of amount of blame for what happened to them in the 18th century. Certainly you'd find many historians that agree with you. I personally believe it's probably somewhere in the realm of 25% their fault, 75% everyone else's fault. But Without doing this too accurately, or giving away too much of the story, there is, of course, more to it than that. In any case, though it isn't black and white, what is certain is that Poland had something which no other country in Europe had, and that is a unique political system and a unique political culture, which was the boast of its citizens, and the source of some severe confusion for its neighbours, and in the years to come, the way in which many of Poland's neighbours would exploit the country's disadvantages, shortcomings and weaknesses. It wasn't all bad, of course, but in this final episode, Section D, Part 1, wherein we examine the Liberum Veto, but also some other important aspects, we see just what it was that made Poland unique and what it was that she had to offer in the realm of European political culture. Have a listen to this, and we'll wrap up things afterwards. To those absolutist states who ruled over multi-ethnic peoples, the Commonwealth must have seemed like an aberration, and the Liberum Veto a key aspect of the unwieldiness of their political system. It was a political system that was naive, never truly united, and always only moments away from instability. Much like the idea of the selfish nobility throwing itself into the arms of the unholy alliance, the Liberum Veto as the silver bullet of death served the picture which the courts of Austria, Prussia and Russia tried to paint remarkably well. Here, look, is another example of the Poles' political unsuitability, that they believed in their foolishness in a concept as impossible as unanimity in all matters. With such principles rooted in their political process, it's no wonder that the Commonwealth collapsed, and to prevent the spread of this disease of instability, it was only natural that the more naturally governed absolutist neighbours of Poland swooped in to fix the mess. From this, it's clear that even while few apologists today may be alive to claim that absolutism is the only true form of government, misconceptions about the Commonwealth still abound in the historical and political discourse. 
In a future episode examining the Liberum Veto in retrospect of the 18th century, we'll see for ourselves the bald fact that the Poles recognised on several occasions the need for reform. It was not the Poles, but those selfish neighbours of Poland who had not ceased from intervening in Poland's political processes and maintaining the unsuitable political system that created in the Liberum Veto a kind of axe, which severed the limbs and then the head, at long last, of the Commonwealth. It is therefore possible to state that the Liberum Veto became a monster, but not all monsters are born as such. Much like the Commonwealth's other political innovations, which were later to become infamous, the Liberum Veto was incepted with the best of intentions, and only later on became a source of such dangerous unrest and paralysis. To answer the question of where this relationship with the Liberum Veto truly began, we must look to that watershed moment in Polish history, the Union of Lublin in 1569. In his article, examining the efforts made to reform the Liberum Veto in the 18th century, the historian Jerzy Lukowski noted that the Liberum Veto was deeply rooted in the very nature of the Polish-Lithuanian state. The 1569 Union of Lublin produced a geopolitical entity which contained competing as well as overlapping interests and each state brought to the table its own noble traditions of participation in what then amounted to democracy and of separate histories of friction and cooperation with their king and grand duke. We've seen this all before in the last episodes looking at the combination of the two Polish and Lithuanian states and how the nobilities in each of these states reacted to this combination. The extinction of the Jagiellonian dynasty in 1572 we also saw, and this was followed by the establishment of an extreme form of elective monarchy. No successor could be designated during a reigning incumbent's lifetime. All adult male nobles, the Schlachte, were entitled to participate personally in an election in which the choice was to be unanimous. Furthermore, all monarchs were subjected to elaborate safeguards designed to... Okay, so you've heard extracts on what made... Poland and Lithuania decide to join together. You've heard details on the Cossacks. You've heard details on the Polish Zlachta and the peasantry. And now you've heard what the Liberum Veto was all about and exactly what it was that made Poland so unique and so special. That's a nice crash course in Poland, and Poland is not yet lost generally. But as you also hopefully heard in the first extract, our scope is going to take us beyond the borders of the Commonwealth, considerable though these borders were. And those personalities and characters that form such an important part of our story will also make it, in my very humble opinion, fascinating and exciting listening. So, if you feel as though you can part with $5 a month, or more if you're feeling very generous and somewhat insane, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. There's never been a better time to sign up, guys, because this is the beginning of the year, this is the beginning of a new series, and this is a very exciting time for this show generally. I've already said how important this show is, and how important your support on Patreon is for me. But to put it in perspective, I, not too long ago, transferred the monies from Patreon into my Trinity student account to pay my PhD fees. So I literally could not do any of this without you. And that's why I'm so thankful and so grateful that you've all brought me this far. But we still have a way to go. So if you want to access this and other series besides, such as 1956, looking at the Suez Crisis, for instance, or a biography series of Jan Sobieski, if you want a lighter side of Polish history, 
then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or fill in the blanks. Click on the link in the description below. That's going to do us, guys, and I'll see you next week for our third episode of the 30 Years War. Or perhaps, if you're feeling up to it, I'll see you in the first episode of Poland Is Not Yet Lost. Thanks either way for listening and having a bit of a window into what we're up to on Patreon. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 